Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you all for joining us today. This show is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, as my pretty bride likes me to say, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, a lot of ideas exchanged there, and more. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yeah, we have the best chat room around. It's a great group of people. It's educational, enlightening, inspiring, and sometimes hilariously funny. Uh, so do come join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. This week, I would like to discuss the power of lies. Not long ago, I had a conversation with Professor Dan Ariely, author of The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. His research is provocative, to say the least, for it clearly demonstrates that everyone lies. I suppose that should come as no real surprise, but if that's so, then why should we be concerned about the lies being told in politics today? After all, with the Internet and our instant access to news and fact-checkers, you would think that it was now impossible to get away with lying. However, the truth is, often we know about the lie, but we act on it anyway. This past weekend, there was another Republican debate, this one in South Carolina, a state famous for its down-and-dirty politics. The headlines everywhere following this televised event aimed at Ted Cruz by Rubio and Trump. Indeed, Cruz of being perhaps even a bigger liar than Jeb Bush, who he has been attacking since the beginning of this campaign season. What are we to believe? What is the real power of lies? When multiple people call the same person a liar, does the label stick? Are you aware that most Americans still believe that Sarah Palin said she could see Russia from her kitchen? It's easy enough to find out exactly what she said, but for some reason the vast majority of folks rely on a quote from Saturday Night Live. Do you know... That a mailer circulated in South Carolina during the Obama-Romney election asked this question. Would you vote for Romney if you knew he had an illegitimate black child? Do you think this had any influence on those who read it? This tactic is particularly clever as the lie is implied, never stated. The fact is, questioning honesty is potentially as devastating as calling someone a liar. The dispersion of doubt can strongly taint the credibility of an individual as well as an entire government. For example, the lies regarding events in Vietnam that were told the public by then-President Lyndon Baines Johnson about our successes arguably led to a generation of governmental distrust. Indeed, his falsehoods were exposed during the Tet Offensive when North Vietnam began to seize control of various cities formally held by South Vietnam and the U.S. military. Most Americans are familiar with Watergate and Nixon's lies, and most are well familiar with Bill Clinton's assertion, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, a perjury that eventually led to impeachment proceedings and the Bar Association lifting Clinton's license to practice law. And most are also aware that Senator Harry Reid publicly bragged that his lies about Romney not paying taxes for 10 years may have contributed to why Romney did not win the presidency. And the senator is actually very proud of this lie. Most should also be aware, of course, that there was a time when Hillary Clinton opposed gay marriage. Think about it for a moment. She was an attorney practicing law at a time when gay activities were unlawful in most states and appeared in the diagnostic manual as a disorder. So, of course, there was a time she opposed gay rights, and she said so publicly. It's good she changed her mind, but it would have been better if she had not lied about 
ever opposing gay marriage in the first place. A common denominator in politics is often lies. So why does it matter? The question is, who do we trust and on what basis? Here's the point of today's spotlight. Negative reports are always remembered and retractions are almost always ignored and the data shows that clearly. In fact, research carried out by Kelly Garrett and Brian Weeks at Ohio State University clearly demonstrated how difficult it is to change someone's mind, even when plenty of evidence has been provided to show that they have been lied to. This is something I flesh out fully in my book, Gotcha, the Subordination of Free Will. But suffice it to say for the moment, negative claims do work, and they work better than most believe. Rumors are often built upon innuendo, and when it comes to politics, it appears that this season, all's fair in elections and war. I would therefore urge all of you to fact-check and reflect carefully before jumping to some conclusion based upon some popular and or repeated insult tendered by a competitor or their supporters. To do anything else is to invalidate your intelligence. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, this whole article is really interesting. We were discussing it on Facebook a little bit, and I had a friend on Facebook say, well, what can we do about it? How can you fact-check everything? And the fact is you can't, but if you are aware always, you know, the amount of lying that goes on, especially by politicians, everyone knows there's no such thing as an honest politician. <laughs> um, so if you are... I'm not going to buy that one, but okay. Well, it's common, you know, yeah, no, they are. There's no such thing as an honest politician. They'll do whatever they can just to get voted in. Um, but if you're aware of the, the lying that goes on, then it stops your emotions from taking over. So maybe that you can pay more attention to what's actually being said and what the motivation behind it is. And then if your emotions aren't involved, you just have a, a better chance of judging the information more dispassionately and not getting led along. Excellent point. Excellent point. All right, we can no doubt, and we will no doubt, I should say, discuss this all a little more during today's show. But first, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Matt Stein, and we spoke of When Technology Fails. John wrote, love your show. Last week's guest is an interesting man. He channels something that informed him of what to write and then spent three or more years writing it. I checked online, and his book is all about some doomsday event. Do you think we are heading there yourself, Dr. Taylor? Now, that's a reasonable question, and a good one. But I'm probably not a good person to ask it of, John, and I'll tell you why. I have always believed that it is a part of our personal responsibility to be prepared for catastrophic events, at least to some minimal extent. So... Should we all store water and food? I think so. Should we also have emergency this and that, like first aid, essential medications, a flashlight, emergency radios, and so forth? Well, of course. The answer again is yes. That said, do I think some major catastrophic event is near? I don't think so. But I prepare as though it were. I have done that for the past 25 plus years and nothing has happened. In my mind, it's a bit like that old saying, Carry an umbrella and it never rains. You want to add anything to that, Ravinder? <laughs> Carry an umbrella and it never rains. Even if it doesn't rain for another 20 years, that reminds me of Ice Storm 96 when um, all the power was out in Spokane. There were areas in Spokane that didn't have power for three weeks. And for us... Longer than that. When we were out of power, though, that means no heat, no cooking, no water, no toilets. That gets pretty disgusting pretty quickly. <laughs> um, but after Ice Storm 96, you went around trying to create redundancy in our home. So we had gas heating installed. We have a small generator. We had a house generator put in. And then nothing happened for 19 years. This last, this last year, just a couple of months ago, we had the windstorm of 2015 and that again took out power everywhere and there were people without power for weeks we barely saw it 
because the power went out, the generator kicked in, you know, you had all the emergency planning in place. And so as a result, it was really smooth, really easy. And that was absolutely fabulous. You know, I really appreciated your emergency preparedness then because going without toilets with two men in the house is... Well, you know, you have to kind of understand here for our listening audience that you're from... I met you in London, England when I was lecturing. So you were raised in London. You come over here and we get a ranch out in the country in the middle of the boondocks and, uh, you know, well water, et cetera. But when you lose the power, you lose your well. And, and it was a near panic kind of situation for you. So, you know, we flew in a small generator during Ice Storm 96. But, you know, then we did, as you say, make those adjustments that largely made all those adjustments just to keep you comfortable, pretty lady. Thanks, buddy. All right, Elizabeth wrote, I never know who or what to believe anymore. How can any of us really prepare for an Armageddon? Well, you know, the best we can do, Elizabeth, is the best, and that's all there is to it. Uh, what I like about Matt Stein's book is that it teaches us how to do so many things that might be needed in an emergency and therefore becomes our reference, a kind of printed Google, if you will for when Google or YouTube are not there anymore. Moving on, Randy wrote, I just wanted to thank you for your amazing InterTalk product. Your Forever Thin MP3 immediately changed my terrible eating habits, something I've tried for many years to fix. And now, in a matter of days, it's greatly improved. I'm a longtime student of Edgar Casey and the ARE saying, the mind is the builder, the physical is the result, has no better example than your work. Well, thank you, Randy. Heidi wrote, I love your InterTalk programs. I have used several in the past and just bought one more. Thank you so much. Gordon wrote, your InterTalk programs allow me to allow me to get me and my emotional or whatever baggage out of the way. So live life as a clean skin. By clean skin, I mean seeing, doing, and being everything without any issues or bias, creating negatives in your conscious mind. In doing this, I have built my confidence exponentially. This has the effect of relieving the stress and bringing the enjoyment and fun back into everyday living. We all have the ability to lead a fulfilling life. InterTalk allows us to do that and more. Thank you. Clean skin. I like that. That's a good <laughs> term when you think about it. Gina wrote, I purchased InterTalk Ultra Prosperity. I love your work and your radio show. I share your work with many of my clients and my friends. Well, thanks, Gina. Finally, Mark wrote, Ellen Taylor's latest book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will, has made me more aware of the many ways in which others have attempted to control my thoughts and choices for their own benefit. As such, I have become more empowered to see through the techniques employed by marketers to get my dollar or politicians to get my vote. Such techniques, which are rooted largely in behavioral psychology, presume that our thoughts and our actions are based on a model of determinism and not of free will. So the name of the game by these marketers and politicians is to discover what techniques produce the desired results. However, such a deterministic view is flaw. As Eldon points out in the book, through mindfulness training and other skills, we can identify many of these techniques and begin to take our power back. We no longer have to be part of the herd mentality, but can become cognitively independent, a rare commodity in this day and age, but a requirement if we are to fulfill our life streams. I do so agree with that, Mark. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show. Gotcha, the subordination of free will. You know, we live in a wonderful country where freedom is cherished, right? I read George Orwell's 1984 many years ago. It was entertaining, frightening, and portrayed a dystopia of a magnitude that led many of us who grew up during the Cold War to think of governments such as the USSR, but certainly never America. A dystopian society is, to, is defined as an imaginary place where people are unhappy and usually afraid because they are not treated fairly. 
Today I look at the political scene and see such anger and animus by and between presidential candidates and the public at large that I wonder just how far away from the America of my youth have we come. There is so much divisiveness and build-up frustration that it's a fair question to ask, why? I have been a student of the human condition, in particularly the mind, for most of my life. For years, I conducted lie detection tests nearly every day, and often I would wonder about the motivations some found to justify their actions, criminal deeds that could lock them away for life. During that time, I, I dealt with homicide cases, abductions, burglaries, robbery, and more. I often heard confessions, and with them came the reasons, none of which ever really made sense. The why behind what people do and the why they believe as they do, I put down to psychology, rationalization, and the other mechanisms, you know. Until one day when it occurred to me that there was something going on in our world that led to many of the so-called justifications I heard. This observation led me to begin searching for a deeper understanding. As such, I began looking elsewhere for motivating factors. We conducted the first ever double-blind study with an incarcerated environment employing a subliminal program to lower hostility and aggression, increase reflectivity, and otherwise prime the population for rehabilitation. The data from this study was both robust in that it was a very big success and informative, informative in the sense that we clearly demonstrated the debilitating nature of blame. For as long as you can blame someone or something for where you are, you escape personal responsibility. It's not your fault. Ah, but for the grace of God, there go you, sort of thinking. The more I examined this construct, the clearer it became. Our society was actually a sponsor of getting even. Bumper stickers like, I don't get even, I get evener, addressed a cultural attitude. Think about that for a moment. What kind of memes have entered our culture that encourage getting even? Over the years, our entertainment, our news cycles, the 24-7 onslaught of information has had a sort of desensitization effect on our arousal mechanisms. And as a result, we see a definite escalation of violence and sex everywhere. Well, I thought, what else is going on at a societal level that is impacting our behavior today? This question ultimately led to three years of assembling data and another year of fact-checking and two more years of writing and editing. Gotcha, the subordination of free will. It turns out that literally in every area of our lives, we are stealthily guided to believe and act as we do. Indeed, billions and billions of dollars have been spent to plumb the depth of your unconscious, and the result is simple. What today are known as neuromarketers know exactly what and how to promote the sale of a product, an idea, a cultural meme, or a political platform, and it goes on every day, everywhere. Not only that, the underbelly of all of this can get very nasty. We find government doing things like poisoning citizens in the name of research or national security. We find dishonesty in the drug industry, tampering with research results when it comes to our food supply, clandestine operations designed to actually devise a real Manchurian candidate, and more. It became clear to me that not only was the public generally unaware of all of this, but that the only defense was foreknowledge. Okay, Ravinder, you and I discussed this book before it was ever published. It's a departure from most of my earlier work, material aimed at empowering and inspiring people. As you know, Rav, I drug my feet somewhat on this one, but you made a very good case for why it was important that the book be published. Share your reasoning with all of us, please. You know, I think ignoring a problem doesn't make it go away or cause it to cease to exist. For you and I, the key, the key questions in life are, who am I? Why am I here? 
and how do I become the best me possible? All of your books and teachings address these questions and gotcha is actually no different. You can never answer the question, who am I, until you discover who you are not. In Choices and Illusions, you talked about how we've been trained only to see um, pos a few possible solutions to any given questions. You say, you know, w w w we try to choose between A, B and C, but in Choices and Illusions, you point out that it really goes all the way up to Z. We just don't see it. Well, Gotcha shows you how this all happens, how easily we give up ownership of our own thoughts and beliefs. It's only by seeing this whole picture that you have any chance of protecting yourself from it. It's only by sifting out all of those ideas that have been foisted upon you that you have a chance to discover who you really are. I think it's a great journey myself. It caused a quantum shift in my own spiritual quest. And as such, I see it as totally fitting in with the rest of your teachings. You really cannot teach about personal empowerment and spiritual growth without addressing the story laid out in Gotcha. It's the missing piece of the puzzle and your readers deserve to know that. At least that's how I saw it all. All right. Now, <laughs> You're going to pull me apart. You've got that face no. on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I just, I, I, I'm reflecting, of course, on when you first read it. Uh -huh. We were actually on a drive from Seattle back to uh, Spokane. Uh-huh. And uh, our son's at UW, so I think that's why we were down there, wasn't yeah. it? Or was it what, whatever it was. It could have been the radio worker. Anyway, uh, we were coming back, and you were reading the manuscript. And when you were reading it, your response wasn't at all what you just said. It was kind of a shock and awe kind of response. So I guess my question is, let me ask you this. What did you think when you first read the book? You know, that's been a few years ago. What did I think when I first read it? It was, oh, my God, there is just so much here. And the story goes on and on and on. And the story is about me. You know, it's about what, what I've done or the choices that I've made. These are things, th this isn't just history that I was reading about. This was stuff that I've experienced in the last few years. You know, I'm not going back to my childhood and remembering. These are stories that I've encountered, things that I've heard, things that, you know, the world has screamed about, and then we've let it go. We've allowed it to happen. I've allowed it to happen. So that, I suppose, was my, my first reaction was, my God, I've, I've allowed this to happen. How did I do that? Why did I do that? Some of the comments on the book have been along that line. It's a participatory kind of uh process as you go through the book because you realize just how affected you personally have been by or continue to be by all of these many tactics, techniques, uh, things that have occurred in the past, nudges. I think of them as nudges because it just takes a little nudge to move you from, you know, one to 1.1 and a little bit more of a nudge to 1.2. You know, it isn't like somebody is trying to get you from 1 to 10 in a hurry. They're just nudging you along. But when you see the nudges, and then you step back, and you see what the plan is, you actually discover that there was a plan, that the plan was made public, that the things that, that we see going on are a part of what this plan is, and these nudges have moved us already from one to seven or one to eight, then it becomes alarming, at least so to me. I think so. You know, I look out at the world right now, and America in particular is so divided. And it's like, how, how did that happen? You know, they have us fighting against each other while really both sides are doing the same thing. It's just going on and on. So, no, I, I mean, I, I do find that all really very upsetting. I think we have just become so divided, so hard-lined in our beliefs that there just isn't communication anymore. Yeah, it isn't so much the divisiveness. There's always been divisiveness in the country. It's it's and, and it's not even really the vitriol, although that's obscene in my opinion. It's the honest-to-goodness angst. It's the anger that underlines it. It's, it's the attitude of, I know better than anyone. I'm absolutely entrenched. There's nothing you can do to tell me otherwise. 
it's it's a battle men- mentality that exists and and that to me is the real disturbing part about the divisiveness it isn't just that we disagree in fact you know we have discussed this before studies show that if i just ask you and allow you to tell me what it is that you believe and why you believe it if i'll just do that you very quickly discover how well you know the subject and that tends to make you a little more timid about you know your earnestness and there is the opportunity to be actually able to engage in a conversation as opposed to a, a spitting match a name calling battle okay look we have a break uh we're speaking about my new book gotcha the subordination of free will we'll get into some great detail in the next half hour so you get an idea just what this book is about. But to learn more about the book, visit my website, eldontaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. Okay, remember to join the conversation in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. But even as we grasp the victory, there is a cancer, an evil tumor, growing, spreading in our midst. Shout! Shout! Shout out his name! Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're discussing the new book. Gotcha, the subordination of free will. Now, the bumper soundtrack we just played is titled Two Minutes of Hate from the movie 1984. One of the reviewers of Gotcha wrote this. Where 1984 reached into the future to tell a story of what would happen in the world, Gotcha reaches into the past and explains how they did it without you knowing it. This is a great read that crosses all interest lines. If you care about this world, you owe it to yourself to read Gotcha. All right, Ravinder, why the subtitle, The Subordination of Free Will? Subordination of Free Will, because it's they're fi- finding a way to take it away from you without you even realizing. They're squashing it. They're squashing my free will, or they're attempting to with all the research that has gone on in trying to find out what makes me tick and therefore what makes everybody tick. You know, they just constantly keep tweaking. They keep tweaking. They keep trying to find that magic word, that magic bullet that will get me to change my mind. And Gotcha has got lots of examples of those kinds of things, you know, things like... um, the one I, I like is the bottle of hand sanitizer on the table. 
um, if you are asked to take a survey, simply having a bottle of hand sanitizer on the table will persuade you to write answers to re responses to the survey that are a lot more conservative than they would be otherwise. So those little tweaks, the smell of bleach in the background will cause people to wash their dishes after having a cup of tea or something like that, you know. Um, but they do. They just constantly try to find those small things that can move yeah, that, us around. When you say the smell of bleach, that's a real interesting example. I, I remember a study that was done with uh, college students where the students, uh, for all intent and purposes, had a distractor task, you know, whatever the task might be. And their reward was, of course, you know, pizza and drinks and whatnot in the cafeteria afterwards. So they, they went from the classroom, well, it was actually from one classroom into an adjoining classroom that had been set up like a cafeteria where they had pizza and so forth. If there was the smell of cleaning material, bleach, as you mm -hmm. say, they cleaned up after themselves. And if they, if there wasn't, they trashed the place, you know. It, it's amazing how these primes actually work on us unconsciously. But you know, when people ask me, Rav, where does this all get started? I think about our, our youngsters, you know. We've got one son that's at the University of Washington that we're very, very proud of. Uh, is doing a great job. And another one that's at Gonzaga Prep is finishing high school. Uh, that we're also very proud of. And both of these young men, um, leaders and, and honor students, and I don't want to brag about them too much, but both of them reflect something to us that we've discussed on many occasions. And that's that, and we bring this out in, in Gotcha, the very nature of our educational system is not to educate. People are unaware of that. You know, our my our sons have said, why am I doing this? What difference does this make? How? And the bottom line is, we answer, to socialize you. you. You see, our modern educational system is a copy of a three-tier system brought here from Prussia, a, a system developed in Prussia in 1819. And men like John Dewey and Edward Thorndike, the founders of the system, were very upfront that our educational system is designed to socialize, not to educate. Now it's three-tier because that upper tier is designed to educate elite. Well, what's the difference? The difference is this. You're not taught in school to think. Thinking is not what school is about. School is about learning alternatives, you know, a, B, C, one, two, three. School is about having the right answer. School is about root core memorization. School is about public discourse and what's politically correct today. And, 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 and on and on. It is about socialization. And when you look at where our educators are coming from, and you look at the themes of those schools, you discover that the very nature of the socialization process itself is changing. The values that we might have had 1950 are not the values that we have 2015. Everything is moving, and it's moving along in a pattern. And it's the pattern, I think, that becomes so obvious in the book Gotcha. Yeah, I think so. You know, the education system is about teaching everyone how to conform, how to think the, the same way. It's just like a, a mass mind programming um, effort going on because they even tell the kids to go home and teach their parents because their parents don't know anything. So there is, there's this, these ideas that just get infiltrated out there and uh, kids especially, you know, reach that point where they want to be in defiance of their parents. So they come across a different idea, then they're going to grab it and they don't seem to realize they're just following another. They're playing into the game. But you know, when you say that, there's some examples that I give in Gotcha, and I know that you'll think of them too, but... You, you have to question the quality of educators. You know, we have some great, some fine teachers. I want everybody to know that I truly believe that. But we have some. I mean, I have 
quotes in the book from educators that when you read them, they're so grammatically incorrect, misspelled words, so, you know, and they come from school, and you just wonder, what, what on, where did they get their degree? Didn't you find that true? I did. I, I know the exact quote that you're thinking of because it went through several different editors, and I think just this one short quote has about 30 grammatical errors in it. It, it was that bad, and these are the people that we hand over responsibility to, for our children. Now, our children spend this vast amount of time in school every day, and we're expected to trust the school system because it's been vetted by who, I don't know, you know, but we're supposed to, t to turn our kids over, and that's, you know, that's the kind of stuff that can go on. There are good teachers. We'll turn our kids but, over. That gives rise to another issue. You know, most people are not aware that the attitude of government is that the children don't belong to you as a parent. No, they just simply don't know that. They don't know that courts have ruled that, you know, the child belongs to the state for all intent and purposes. And that, that that's scary. You know, one of the things people ask me, they say, well, why, why did you include everything in this? And I think, look, we're supposed to trust government. That's why government exists. Mm -hmm. Government's there to protect us. But when you learn that, you know, government does things like, well, in the 50s, uh, the, the Navy decided, this is just one quick example, the Navy decided that it would be an interesting experiment to see if the fog off of San Francisco could be a delivery mechanism for a bacteria, for a, uh, you know, uh, here we're going to use the fog to stimulate, or to simulate, I should say, germ warfare, okay? That story so they did. horrified me. They did. And, and not only were they successful in doing it, but at least one man died. And Edward Nevin was the man's name, and his family sued. And the courts ruled. This was September 1950. The courts ruled that the government had the right to do this, and they couldn't be sued as a result. Now, people aren't aware of that. You know, we just tend not to, to realize that things of this nature go on, and they go on with impunity. And that is our fault, because we don't hold anybody accountable. You know... You were the primary fact checker. You were the person who saw that every detail in the book was substantiated with citations, including Earl's that can be accessed immediately if you're reading an electronic version. I know that as you fact checked, you came upon additional information. So it's fair to say that despite over 400 pages of copy in the book, that the book is simply touching the many areas of life that we all deal with. And if so, what was your impression coming away from the rigor of it all? You know, it is true. Um, when I was doing the fact-checking, and don't put me in the hot chair there, because now if anyone finds a citation that's not correct, it's my typo that has slipped through. Um, well, why wouldn't you be accountable <laughs> for your own? <laughs> that's not a hot chair. Anyway, go on. Because there is, there is such a lot there. But you're right. You know, as I was doing all the fact-checking, I found a whole lot more, and you could easily write an entire sequel to the book. Um, but I think the book gets its power simply because you do cover such a vast range of subjects in such depth with so many um, references and citations from all of these different sources. If you only had one or two examples for anything, then you could argue it back. I could say, well, that's not quite true, or no, what about? And you, you could discount the material. The fact that there is so much there, I mean, that, that was my takeaway from the book. There isn't any denying the picture, and that's what you wanted to do. You know, you wanted to put all the dots on the page so that it was pretty clear. And you can remove one or two dots, but the picture remains because it is so full and so complete. Your original publisher actually wanted you to um, reduce the size of the book so that it was more saleable because people don't want the detail. And it's in the detail that the book gets its power. You know, there is no denying... Um, how much of our freedoms we give away ourselves because we don't speak up or we speak up and then we forget. I thought the original publisher 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought one of the issues was, uh, you know, this is, uh, uh, you got to say it nicer. You, you, you know, you, you, we're not ready to to tell the whole story uh, I think, kind of approach. Yeah, I think right there you did a really good job. When you were talking about the book as you were writing it, you know, it's like, honey, no one's going to want to read that number of citations. Honey, you can't just quote. You know, we went through this over and over again. And then when I pick up the book, and it is a huge book, and I was reading it as we were driving to C- Seattle, as you said, and I expected to find it heavy going, and it wasn't because it was all about me. You know, I could read it because I could relate to it. I could understand it. There were, I mean, the majority of the stories did affect me as well from the food games that are played, the word games in foods. Healthy doesn't mean healthy whatsoever. And blueberry bits does not mean (laughs) bits of blueberry. You know, I mean, there are games everywhere. And, and then there were the other, the other big stories like Prism and, you know, things that the entire nation got all upset about and then forgot. And it's like, why, why do they forget? The problem hasn't gone away. It's still there. Our freedoms are being taken away and we're allowing it to happen because in a large number of instances, the particular problem isn't affecting us personally. So it's like, oh, it, it's affecting them. Uh, we don't speak up for them. But when it does affect us, who's going to be there to, to protect us? Uh, very well said. You know you know that I had a conversation with Cleon Skousen once in his office. And uh, Skousen is, uh, well, he was past uh, chief of police in Salt Lake City, chief of police in Chicago, former bureau uh, FBI agent. Um, but he was involved in a lot of, uh, of um, clandestine sorts of investigations, and he wrote a book about uh, uh, some of the things that he learned. And in the book, he spelled out the objectives of a group uh, whose intention was to change the complexion of America, to weaken America. And, um, you know, the breakdown of the nuclear family was one of those issues. And, of course, how to do that was spelled out, you know. And, and I can remember when pop psychologists were saying, you know, look, if parents don't get along, they're better to live apart, you know, get divorced, it's okay, you know, children will be fine. Uh, when an idea such as that promoted did lead to the breakdown of the nuclear family when neighborhoods began to become individual units where you live in a community but you don't know who lives next to you you might see him or wave at him but you don't you know where we begin to isolate anyway it's a long long story and i don't we don't have time to cover it all but the fact of the matter is when you read what was laid out, how they wanted to bring about weakening this country, and then you look at where the country is today, you see they've been very successful. Very successful indeed. So let me ask you this. Was there any one area that inflamed your senses more than any other? You know, there were lots of bits. I went on about the blueberry bits and these other stories. Now, I think what inflamed me the most was that I was one of the people that had allowed it to happen. Because there are, as I said, there are lots of stories in there that I remember, I related to, I forgot about. You know, you hear a story, you get upset, you forget about it. So, no, I think I was the most upset with myself for it and, you know, from my circle of friends and associates because we we allow it to happen because we we keep thinking they can't be that bad. Or, you know, this is America, and this is where freedom is. And, and so you dismiss the importance of everything. So, no, that's what upset me, and it did. The psychological law of self-exemption. It happens to somebody else, but it won't happen to me. That's what you're basically saying. Uh-huh. What would you have done uh, if you were to relive these moments that you're talking about? Knowing what you know now, what would you, what could you do? 
You know, I think it's what you and I do with all of the work that we do. You know, the books that you write, we just try to educate people and say, wake up. I I do participate more. You know, if there's a petition of some kind, I will make an effort. I will go and do some of my own research. I don't check everything, but I do follow up stories of my own. And I, yeah, I'm doing more now than I did back then is there more that I could do probably you so know, what I you're think saying, it's an ongoing process you have become a conscious activist now you know I'm old enough to remember the value of being an activist I you know I'm old enough to remember Martin Luther King and the marches and uh, and the inequities and I'm old enough to remember Helen Gurley Brown and the burning of the bras and you know uh, women's emancipation and uh, you know, I, uh, protest, peaceful protest, peaceful involvement. They can be on Facebook. They can be um, edit, uh, letters to your editor, uh, the, the local newspaper. Um, they can be petitions in your community. They can be letters to your senators, your representatives. The kind of change that we would want, the kinds of things that we see happening that we don't want to happen, if we don't do something about it, who will? It's true. I think one of the things that I try to do, because there are so many causes out there, you can't participate in all of them. So my thinking is adopt a cause, whatever it may be. You know, do something, any one particular area. Keep an eye open on the others, but you can't tend them all. But if they come into your sphere, then you can do something. But adopt one. If everybody adopted a cause that had them um, upset, if they got involved in one thing, well, between us all and our ver variety of interests and cares and concerns, then we would have it covered. So it's do something. Whatever that may be, do something. Yeah, right now, I for me, I think the most important issue out there is campaign finance reform. As long as money can buy the White House, as long as uh, yep. politicians are indebted to, you know, uh, some big pocket, this, that, or the other. Uh, we will continue to have, uh, you know, people appointed to governing positions who were former executives for companies like Monsanto, and they will make decisions about things like how the TPP will be written, and therefore countries that participate in it who may have banned Monsanto's GMO will no longer be able to ban those GMOs. I want to see that kind of stuff, not just exposed, but stopped. And I don't see any way to do that short of changing the way money plays in our political role. I know your concerns are more about animals, and I share those. Oh, I definitely share the concern about money in politics because the whole system is just a mess. It's absolute chaos out there, and it is. The one with the deepest pockets will win. The one who has access to all of this information that you cover in Gotcha, they're the ones that are going to win. They're the ones that, you know... Like the politician the that hires the elite social psychologist team. Yeah, you know, um, that's exactly what Barack Obama did in the last election. He hired, he employed seven of the keenest minds in social psychology, the guys that are genuine neuromarketers. They know exactly how to push the button to get the response that they want to get. And so they scripted literally everything that was involved in canvassing. Now, you know, that's how it's going to be. That's the way of the future. We're going to see that used more and more by everybody. So this isn't a condemnation of, of Obama. That was a pretty smart move. I mean, if you know the tactics exist, of course you're going to use that information. But that be, that's all the more reason it's incumbent upon us to become aware of these little techniques that give rise to pushing button A, and we respond in way B, the mechanisms of the unconscious mind. Let me let me ask you this, Rav, because we're running short on time. You're an immigrant to this country, and I know how proud you are to be a citizen. I met you in London, England, and uh, as I said earlier, you were troubled when you learned of the many ways rights have been usurped by authorities of government in America. Tell me, how do you feel about that now? 
You know, I am a very proud American. I consider myself a religious. I don't believe in following any religion whatsoever. But if I had a creed of anything, anything that I would hold inviolate would be man's right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I think America is a fabulous country. It's a baby of a country compared to all the others. Um, but it's gained its power and its wealth from rugged individualism, from um, your right to soar as high as your talents and your work will take you. So I find this deterioration that's going on right now incredibly upsetting but I do want to add something else and this is a bit of a tangent but I've got people jumping up and down in the chat room you know and Richard says I'm gonna just have to read this directly you know he says that we are having the book it sounds like the book is a lot heavier than it is he says that he found it very a, a very compelling and fun read um, he says, I streak through it. It would be good to mention how some of your readers find the book really fun to get through, entertaining almost, compelling at the least. And he says, I also love the structure of the book and that made it really readable. Um, you know, how you have the belief versus truth opening to each chapter. That was, you know, something that he found uh, incredibly interesting. But yeah, it's not, it's not a heavy book and that's what makes it all so fascinating? I think it's because it's so personal. It's not heavy. It's um, I went through it just in driving, and I don't like to read a book when I'm driving because I can get a bit carsick. So the subjects sound really heavy. That I I agree with, and it's easy for us to get off portraying the book maybe as that. But I, Richard's not the only one that said, "Hey, this was one I couldn't put down. This was you yep. know, this was a journey. This was an excitement. This was an adventure. And the scary part was." Yep. I was playing a part in it all the way through, you yep. know. So, all right. Well, we have just simply come out of time, run out of time. So I want to thank you, Princess. You did a great job as a host and guest today. Did I pass and, the exam? Do oh, I understand the book? <laughs> with flying colors, absolutely. Okay. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our producer, Eric Reeder, and thank you again, Ravinder, and all of you in the chat room, everybody else out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Remember, check out the book at eldentaylor.com. Okay, until next time, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.